When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. With me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. A whole lot of programming notes to get to before we go into this episode of the show, exiting the Major League All-Star break and the Minor League All-Star break into the second half of the season. We also just had the MLB draft. So Spencer Morris, he's our amateur scouting expert. He's going to drop on Thursday by the time you're listening to this, his big overview of what the Marlins did in their 20-round draft this year. Be sure to check that out, fishstripes.com slash prospects. Go to fishstripes.com. Also on the site, Adam Akbani. He's making his Fish Stripes debut as a writer, breaking down the Marlins' hitting development struggles in recent years. Finally, also on Wednesday, we just recorded a new trivia show of Marlins Jeopardy featuring Jeremy Taché of Bally Sports Florida. Those are always a great time as we take Marlins history and contemporary topics and we put them in Jeopardy-style formats. You can rewatch that thing in its entirety on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. Always accepting fan submissions for Jeopardy clues in future episodes. We do it mostly during the off-season, but as was the case here, mixing it in during the long season as well. For the majority of this official show episode, we have an interview. Me and Daniel Rodriguez brought on Ben Carlisle, the publisher of Bleed Tech Blue. He's a former pitcher at Louisiana Tech, and if you're wondering what the connection is, the Marlins, during day two of their draft, they picked two players from Louisiana Tech. The more that I did digging on that baseball program and the particular guys that they selected, uh, we'll be focusing on Cade Gibson and Kyle Krigger, both of them pitchers for that team. I was just really fascinated by a lot of angles of this. He also has some perspective on the Marlins' top draft pick, Jacob Berry, as well, considering that he was playing in Louisiana this past season. It's it's much different conversation than we usually have on the pod, but I think you're really going to love it and what it says about how the Marlins are approaching scouting and development at this critical juncture of the organization. Right before we get into that, and right on the other side of this quick break, I'm diving into the Juan Soto sweepstakes. One of the best hitters that I've ever seen is on the trade block. Stick with me. I usually don't double dip 
some of the topics that were on a Fish Stripes article and do it on the pod. I don't want to be redundant in that way. Uh, so the full article I put up on Juan Soto, that is on the site if you want to check it out. It's 1,300 words about Soto, his why he's available in the first place, his potential fit with the Marlins if they were to go after him, and what that proposal would look like. Several times in that article, I put the disclaimers in there that it's not going to happen, that we know above all else the Marlins just are too frugal to support a player of Soto's caliber. On here, I wanted to just look at a couple different angles of that that I don't think I covered sufficiently in the article form as well, and some things that aren't even Soto-specific, but also bigger picture topics regarding the Marlins. The big jaw-dropping stat about Soto to lead it off is that this guy, who is a perennial MVP candidate, who's been back-to-back all-star selection, who was a key component to a World Series team three years ago. This guy, he is younger than any hitter that has played for the Marlins this season. Already established, well-established as a potential future Hall of Famer, and yet he is still in his age 23 season. It's just, it, it, it's what, it's the critical factor about why potentially, even if the Nationals want to trade him, why it's so hard to get a deal done that is fair for both sides. This is a once-in-a-generation type of player that is so good at such an early age, so established, and so good at the most fundamental aspect of baseball, which is being a hitter. Being a good hitter, being very well-disciplined. Soto is 555 games into his career. That's a big sample. And he has a 968 OPS. He, last year, the last couple of years, in 2020 and 2021, he got on base in almost half of his plate appearances, more walks and strikeouts, on pace for an, an, another 30 home run season this year. He has the power, too. He is just a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Anyway, you slice it, one of the very best players in baseball and one who at this moment is not tied down to a big contract. So this is another detail that came flying in. And the reason why he's available in the first place is that the Nationals, they made a record-setting contract offer to him. 15 years, $440 million. That would be the largest guarantee in terms of years and dollars, 15 and 440 in Major League history. He turned them down. He turned them down because he knows that he's probably worth more than that, or at the very least wants more flexibility with his career than to tie himself to one franchise through what would be the vast majority of that career. At the end of the day, uh, it's, it's out of my hands of what decision they make. Yeah, I mean, I talk with my people right here, and they take care about everything else. Uh, for me, I just come to the field, play baseball, and enjoy as much as I can. He is a Scott Boris client, and it's going to take it's going to take an just an unfathomable amount of money in order to keep him away from free agency. But just because the Nationals felt desperate to extend him, I don't think that is necessarily true of whoever is trying to acquire him. So this is the point: people that were disagreeing with me about this idea, and most people did. They didn't like this idea because they know that Soto is not going to be affordable for the Marlins long term, even in this imaginary world where they do get him in the first place. He's going to be a free agent after the 2024 season, and there's no way they are going to support the highest paid player in baseball, regardless of how young he is, how consistent he is year to year. 
that it's not going to happen. They're absolutely right about that. I just want people to realize how precious every single season is for the Marlins at this stage. This isn't 2018 anymore. This isn't where you're looking. Obviously, you want to have the long-term ramifications in mind whenever making any decision, but this is not a team that I think a fan base that should be at all satisfied with prioritizing the long-term over the here and now. This is a team that I think is just barely close enough on the periphery of the postseason hunt that at this very moment, their mentality should be adding more talents that gives them some sort of chance to stick around and sneak into the postseason. And maybe that changes over the next couple of weeks between now and the trade deadline. If they do fall on their face, if they do lose the majority of those games over the next two weeks, I think that decision is pretty much made for them. That if they're just too far away, then you can't justify focusing on the here and now. But Soto, in this situation, 2024, after that season, is when he's available for free agency. That gives you two and a half seasons between here and now. So if you're on the opinion that this season is already lost, and I can understand that perspective considering how poorly they played right before the All-Star break, I guess that's defensible uh, to me. At this very moment, I I think there is still a shred of hope in that the Marlins should be looking around, not just at Soto, but across all the entire landscape, and thinking about trying to target players that fit their team and can make them measurably better in August and September and early October, and who can be acquired very efficiently. So this Soto deal, it would not be efficient. It would be... It would just it'd be crippling to the farm system. There's no doubt about it. It would take a farm system that I think most people would say was uh, above average right now at this very moment, even in light of a lot of recent graduations. And it would include their very best prospect, Yuri Perez. It would include Edward Cabrera as he works his way back to, from injury. It would include J.J. Bladé, who was very highly touted originally as a first-round draft pick, as well as a couple teenagers that are more lottery tickets at this stage of their career, Yidi Cape and Ronald Hernandez, the shortstop Yidi Cape and the switch hitting catcher Hernandez, both of them international signees who I think very highly of and are certainly top 30 Marlins prospects, but ones that are still many years away from the majors and have yet to establish themselves in full season ball yet. The final piece that I threw into this package, in addition to Perez, Cabrera, Blade, Cape, and Hernandez, was Trevor Rogers. Trevor, who entering this season we thought would was borderline untouchable in this organization as a an all-star in his rookie year and somebody that just showed a remarkable skill set for a starting pitcher. And his, his future is still, in my opinion, very bright. But, of course, coming off a of first half of the season, that showed that he cannot be relied upon to contribute to winning the rest of this year. And so whether it's the Juan Soto trade in particular, the one that we know is probably not going to happen, for the Marlins or anything else, I think Trevor Rogers is an interesting guy to keep in mind that still, I believe, has immense value on the market considering what he did a very short time ago. And yet he's at a stage where either the Marlins are a team that plummets out of the race and he can do continue sticking in the rotation every five games in a low-stress environment, or he's somebody that could benefit from being traded to a team that is in a low-stress situation in exchange for somebody that can be more reliable down the stretch. 
So the last word about the article is that it was an eight-player trade, those six guys going from the Marlins and bundling Soto and Victor Robles from the Nationals. Because what makes Soto a little bit of an awkward fit, of course, is that he is exclusively a corner outfielder with the exception of the All-Star game. I don't know if people caught that. He played center field for a few innings in the All-Star game on Tuesday. Other than that, he's a corner outfielder where the Marlins already have invested a whole lot of money in Avisiel Garcia, in Jorge Soler, and several of their top prospects. Even in addition to Blade, several of their other young outfielders are also kind of exclusively corner guys. So it is already a crowded position, just one that does not have very many good solutions at this particular moment. And Soto would be a vast upgrade over that. I believe there's some creative shuffling that they can do with players on this team in order to have Soto there every day and still have still get actual meaningful production from those other veterans that are already in place in the corner outfield spots and in the DH mix as well. So more of that is in the article. Just finishing up on this, some things that came to mind when I was exploring this topic is a reminder that the Major League schedule changes next year. Instead of 19 games head-to-head against all of your division rivals, it's only going to be 14. And also, with that, obviously what went into effect this year is the new playoff format, which adds an extra wildcard spot to both leagues. So some traditionalists are going to be bothered by this. The reality is that divisional play is going to be less important moving forward than it ever has been before. When you're playing less head-to-head against these teams... And when you have an extra route that you can take into the postseason without directly going through your division rivals, then trading, making transactions with each other, I think is going to become more acceptable than it ever has been before. It has been speculated that the Nationals don't want to trade within their division. I think that came from John Heyman of the New York Post. I, I don't think that that's actually the, the, going to be the reality of the situation with this and other similar cases moving forward, that they're just going to look for the best offer out there. The Marlins are a team that with that package I laid out there, a lot of guys that at this particular moment are not essential to the Major League team, um, that could be dealt in order for the Marlins to make the biggest of all possible upgrades. I wanted to focus on Soto just because to reinforce how rare it is that a player of this talent in his contractual situation, still two and a half years away from free agency, with his skill set doing what he does well, these guys do not come available every year or even every five years. Like this is, it is not all that dissimilar to the Miguel Cabrera situation back in 2007. That's kind of the, that is the territory that Soto has ascended in already so early in his career. If it's not going to be Soto, who is it? Who is going to be this bat or multiple bats that the Marlins are going to get for several years moving forward that will meaningfully improve their offensive outlook? There are, you go through the names and there's just not a lot of easy fits moving forward. Ramon Laureano is somebody I've brought up that others have brought up who is a good overall player he is not a especially fantastic hitter he never has been and this year it's been just fine it's fine the upside is not nearly the same as somebody like Soto I guess the closest you can get is Brian Reynolds who we know the Marlins have been zeroing in on going back 
I think, a full year now since last trade deadline and have continued to knock on the Pirates' door regarding his availability. And he does play center field at least at a passable level. He, he has experience there that Soto does not. He's still working his way back from an oblique injury. It is doubtful, very doubtful, that he's going to be traded anywhere at the deadline because he might still be on the injured list or just fresh off of it. So that's going to have to wait as well. They are in the spot where I it's frustrating. It's frustrating because you know that Soto is not going to be a realistic option. He's going to be making, by next year, $25 million, and the year after that, even more so. He's under club control, but he's under control at, by Marlins standards, what's going to be an obscene cost that I can't imagine them paying an individual player. And just aside from him, you're really reaching for guys that are are available and make sense for this team both this year and for several years beyond that. We'll have to be patient. We'll have to see it play out. I know people are craving more trade deadline content, and this has been a frustration of mine. I jumped the gun a little early saying they should be sellers, and uh, just when I was changing my tune about that and flipping around, they laid an egg the way that they did this past week. So you're just going to have to wait. These decisions are going to go down to the wire about as close as possible within a couple days of the August 2nd deadline before we see any moves. And you can understand why, because they are, I think, just as much, if not more so, than any other team in baseball. They are on that bubble of deciding whether to push or whether not to push. And it was my feeling that the fan base itself would not allow them to lay low, that would want them to be aggressive. And yet when I put out something the way that I did about Soto, there's a lot of blowback between people that don't want to mortgage a portion of the future in order to raise the team's floor for this year and the year after and the year after that. I don't know where the window is for this team to contend. If it isn't here and now, if it isn't opening right now, when is it going to open so naturally, I'm hopeful that they do perform the way that they need to in the next couple of weeks in order to be buyers, but we'll be following every single game. People say like certain games are critical, are most important, blah, 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 blah. Every single game, every single game between now and the deadline is crucial to the, making the decisions that the Marlins will have to make. So I love it. It's I know it's a complicated and stressful time. Uh, I... It's different than I was anticipating just a month ago or even a couple weeks ago. They keep flip-flopping in that regard. It's interesting. It is a unique situation for sure. So thanks for listening to that. Be sure to check out the article if you haven't already. We'll we'll have more realistic trade deadline targets and can't sell candidates and both sides of that uh, as we get closer to the deadline. In the meantime, Going back to MLB draft content, here's our interview, myself and Daniel Rodriguez with Ben Carlisle of Bleed Tech Blue. Enjoy. Here on the official show, Eli Sussman, Daniel Rodriguez, with a special interview here in the aftermath of the 2022 MLB draft. Marlins made 20 picks, and two of them from the same school, from Louisiana Tech. And in the seventh round, getting Kyle Krigger, a right-handed pitcher. In the 10th round, getting Cade Gibson, a left-handed pitcher. Uh, and we're going to 
to find out more about these guys and about this program in Louisiana Tech and also some adjacent draft topics. Um, I think just an amazing guest that we thought would be most appropriate for this is a former pitcher at Louisiana Tech himself, and he's the publisher of Bleed Tech Blue that covers all things about the program. It's Ben Carlisle. Thank you for jumping on with us. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate y'all having me on. In I wanted to start pretty generally because I did not, I admitted to you, I did not know much about this program at all until the names were called, I guess this was on Monday with uh, both these players. And from the most basic standpoint, could you just let people understand exactly where Louisiana Tech is and a little bit about the history of the baseball program they got over there? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when you look at, or when you hear the the name Louisiana Tech, I think a lot of people, uh, around the country kind of associate the entire state of Louisiana with New Orleans. But uh, Louisiana Tech's actually located in Ruston, Louisiana, uh, which is in the kind of the, the central, the far, as far north as you can get, but in the middle part of the state. Uh, it's about an hour and a half uh, to the east of Shreveport, which is probably uh, the biggest major city that, that's close to Louisiana Tech. And uh, it, it's a program that, you know, uh, and we talked about this before we started recording, you know, I played at Louisiana tech uh, from 2011 to 2014. Um, and, and, you know, you going all the way back, you know, to the early nineties into the two thousands and to where we are in 2022, uh, the program hasn't had a lot of history in the last 30 years, but as you've seen uh, dating back to 2016, that the program's now been to three regionals, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but back in 2019, there was actually a, a tornado that came through Ruston, wiped out the entire stadium. Uh, so the program got to build a new stadium, but, you know, off of that. Uh, and it's really kind of led to where they've been the last couple of years, hosting a regional in 2021, uh, playing in the Austin regional this past season. And, and Kyle Krigger, uh, Cade Gibson, th those two guys were uh, key contributors uh, really strong performers throughout their time in Ruston, no doubt about it. Yeah, both me and Daniel were big Miami Hurricanes fans, and I think maybe if any if they know anything that the listeners about the school, it's probably about these teams meeting on the football field a few years ago in the Independence yeah. Bowl. You, you remember that game where uh, Miami got they got embarrassed there? I don't want to remember. Got that. shut out in in a bowl game that against never Louisiana Tech, but yeah. I imagine that was a lot of fun for you guys. No, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I was actually on the sideline at that game. And I also remember uh, back in my childhood when Miami traveled to Shreveport uh, and they met at a neutral site game at Independence Stadium. And, um, you know, I believe Frank Gore, Antrell Roll, Sean Taylor. Uh, that's one of, you know, back in Miami's heyday. That, that was so cool for us to get to see them uh, way back then, but yeah, absolutely. I, I forgot about that, uh, independence bowl game back in 2019. Yeah. One other thing before I hand it over to Daniel, the Marlins, the big league team, they had their triple a affiliate yep. in and New, New Orleans, Orleans. Mm -hmm. for, uh, over a decade until I think 2019 as, as we just got into, you know, it's not anywhere close to Rustin. That's a big drive to get down there, but I am curious that if you ever, been, we ever were to one of those New Orleans AAA baby cakes I, games when they I were have not the, the I have not ever been down in New Orleans to a baby cakes game. The the closest minor league team that we had to us for a while, uh, the Giants Double A team was actually the Shreveport Captains, uh, and you'd have to go way back. It's probably been 15, 20 years now uh, since they relocated, but 
uh, th- those are the minor league games that I kind of went to growing up, uh, which obviously they're not around. And so probably the closest to us now, uh, Jackson, Mississippi is, is a couple hours from Ruston. Uh, th- that that'd be the closest minor league affiliate, maybe into Little Rock, uh, something like that would be, you know, where fans in our areas would go for minor league baseball. Yeah, um, my question to you, just really quick, I want to go a little bit of, on your baseball career that you're actually teammates with the current major leaguer now from the Astros, Phil Maton. Just how is that uh, being teammates with him and just seeing where he's at right now, just killing it with the Astros? Yeah, it was really cool. I'm glad you asked about Phil. He was actually my roommate in college. Uh, so we got to know each other really well. He's from Chatham, Illinois. Uh, just one of those kids from the north who was wanting to get down into the south, which is, you know, probably – uh, more baseball country and you know as a pitcher he kind of burst on the scene for us as a freshman uh remember we went up to a midweek game at Vanderbilt uh and he you know went seven innings probably punched out 10 uh and really had a good solid career at Louisiana Tech I don't think any of us uh walking away from that it's like Phil's gonna pitch in the big leagues one day but uh he got the opportunity to get drafted I believe in the 20th round by the Padres uh, they stuck him in the bullpen. He's a spin rate guy before spin rate was kind of really emerged as one of those catchy phrases that you hear across, you know, minor league and major league baseball. And uh, he really utilized it. You look at his minor league numbers, they were really absurd coming up through uh, the Padres system. And he was he, at Tech, he was a fastball slider guy. Uh, I know he's developed into a little bit of a cutter guy now that he's gotten into the big leagues, but uh, just a great guy. Um, and like I said, I had the opportunity to play with him at Louisiana Tech, but uh, happy for him and all the success that he's had throughout his career. And what have you seen from the Bulldogs last year? Because last year was easily one of the best seasons in, in team history, uh, making the tournament again for back-to-back years and winning the conference for the first time since the 80s. How, how was that also watching it and also the performances from Krigger and from Cade? Yeah, you know, you go like I mentioned earlier that that tornado in 2019. Um, you, you hate to say something that something like that would kind of lay the foundation for where they're at right now, but uh, in a way, it did. You, you guys are familiar with college athletics with the transfer portal, and guys can so easily leave, and not one player left off that team. Uh, the, the 2020 team was slated to play at a high school field for its home games all year. Obviously, the season gets shut down due to COVID. Uh, and you mentioned Krigger. He was one of those guys that he signed with Louisiana Tech knowing that they didn't have a home field. So, uh, you know, a lot of credit goes to him for holding that commitment. And they go through that 2020 season, COVID hits. Um, and, you know, that kind of put a stop on I don't know if you can necessarily say it's a good thing or a bad thing. Obviously, some guys got their eligibility uh, frozen at that point. But, uh, once they got the stadium rebuilt, they opened it in 2021. It just kind of created that wave of momentum uh, to where we've got to today. Um, you know, all those guys stick around. You get the extra year due to COVID. That paid off for them big in 2021 when then they hosted the regional. And they kind of carried that over here into 2022 with Kyle Krigger, Cade Gibson, uh, two older guys. It was kind of their time to lead. Ryan Jennings, another right-handed pitcher that was selected by the Blue Jays. Uh, Taylor Young was a, a second baseman selected by the Dodgers in the eighth round. And really all those guys just kind of rallied together and, and it's kind of established that blue collar mentality, uh, that they take on that Lane Burroughs kind of, 
uh, heads up as the head coach. And it's been, I'll, I'll be honest, it's been really, really fun to watch. It's been impressive to watch uh, just to kind of see the rise of the program. And then now that we're into the offseason, uh, they got some former top 100 guys out of high school transferring in from LSU and Texas A&M. So you've kind of been able to see the bump up in recruiting as well. Yeah, we're going to get into your guys in just a moment. Really quickly, I think it's we should probably cover the number one pick that the Marlins made in this draft class just because he's, he was in state. He did play head-to-head against Tech this past season, and that's Jacob Berry, who actually, as of earlier today, he's agreed to terms with the Marlins. They're going to pay $6 million bucks to uh, bring him in, and I'm curious about anything. It was only one year that he played for LSU after he transferred in from out west. If, if there's anything that you saw from him, if uh, how closely did you follow his season? Yeah, so I actually d- did some radio for about a year and a half here in Ruston. So uh, going back to February, uh, LSU came up to Ruston. Uh, they, they'll take one midweek around the state, you know, per year. And we got the opportunity to interview Jay Johnson, the head coach down there, uh, on the day of the game. And, and that was one of the questions I'd ask because we were familiar with, obviously that Barry had transferred in and he, he just said he's the, the purest hitter he's ever been around. And I think you get the opportunity to see him in person. And, and I don't think anything wows you physically as far as how he's built or, or what he does, but he just barrels the baseball so well. And I know a lot of people talk about uh, how some of the, the batted ball data is not all that impressive, but, but I, I legitimately believe you could throw him in double a right now. And I, I'm, I mean, I would imagine if you gave him the next two months of the minor league system, you'd start him in AAA the following year. Uh, I just believe he's that good of a hitter. Uh, a lot of questions about his defense, and I, I don't know. He, I think there's a chance he could end up uh, as a DH. He's not the most overly athletic kid in the world, uh, which gives you some, you know, gives you some hesitation. And, and we got to see him. Uh, I believe he played right field the day he was in Ruston. It, it just. He doesn't have a lot of fluid movement, I, I guess, when it comes to his athleticism. But I, I believe in the bat. I, I'm a huge Cubs fan myself, so I was hoping he was getting to number seven and, and they would take a chance to get him there. But uh, I can tell you, he is one of the best hitters. I think he's the best hitter in this college class. And I think he's going to do nothing but hit at the major league level. Yeah, and you know, the question I wanted to ask was, Against LSU, you really had really great performances. Um, first off, from Cade, I'm looking at his stats right now. He had five innings, three hits, one walk, eight strikeouts. Just what did you see from Cade and even Kyle, who finished up the game against LSU, when they're doing so good against one of the top teams in college baseball? So first, I want to tell you guys a little bit about Cade's story. It's so interesting. It's so cool. I uh, actually started his career at an NAIA school over in Shreveport, uh, LSU Shreveport, and – uh, to be honest with you, numbers weren't great. Mid-six ERAs, got hit around a bunch. And it's a good NAI conference, but it's not a guy that you would, you know, create a lot of buzz to when he transferred back to Louisiana Tech. He's from Ruston, and that was kind of his thoughts as far as why he wanted to come back was to be the, you know, play for his hometown school. And Lane Burroughs gave him a chance to walk on. Uh, then he had, needs Tommy John surgery. And so it's like, oh, man, like, is he ever going to get the opportunity to play again? And then 2021 hits, he's a guy, you hear so much about how he performs in the fall. First outing of the year is actually down in Baton Rouge at LSU. Uh, I believe he gave up a grand slam in his first inning, and you're like, oh, man, like, you know, what, what's going to happen? But uh, a couple weeks later, number four Ole Miss comes to town. He goes, I believe, seven innings, sh- shuts him out at home. 
over those seven innings, and you're like, all right, you know, th- this guy's a guy. But the one thing that sticks out about Cade Gibson, uh, beyond what he does on the mound, he's an ultimate competitor. Like when he takes the baseball, he's coming right at you. He's, he's not going to pitch around guys. He doesn't care, uh, you know, what your name is, what kind of accolades you've accomplished in your career. He's going to come at you with a fastball changeup and curveball, and uh, he commands the strike zone really well. Um, he's obviously an older kid, um, having been in college, I believe, for six years. So I think I'll be most interested to see, you know, how the Marlins decide to use him. Uh, being so old, I would imagine you stick him in a bullpen and kind of see what he can do. Um, and you look at this past year for Louisiana Tech, he started out as the midweek guy, moved up to the Sunday guy, and then he was the Friday night guy by the end of the year. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, the biggest thing for him on the mound, he's got a really good fastball, really good curveball. Uh, and, and going in on right-handers when his, when his fastball is right, uh, that's when he's at his best is going in on right-handers and then using that curveball to play off of it. Yeah, and I was just looking at one of his games. He probably had his best game against a team here in Miami against FIU he with his longest eight innings, five strikeouts. Uh, just w- what type of pitcher do you, did you see him as? Is he um, can he go these deep innings, seven, eight, nine innings? Do you see him like that, or would you saw him at LA Tech? Yeah, I, th- I think he's better suited as far as a multi-inning reliever. And you know, th- there's all these so many different things that professional organizations can do with guys that can can allow them to get deeper into games. But there there was oh, I'd bet eight or nine starts this year where he'd give you shutout baseball over the first three or four innings of the game that he would kind of lose it once he hit that 60 65 70 pitch mark so I think he's probably better suited uh, to be a, a multi-inning reliever which would allow him to predominantly become a fastball curveball guy which I think are as easily his two best pitches as as you did mention, a little bit older than most of these other draftees. I think yeah. he's 24 and a half at this point. Yeah. So uh, that's that is unusual, but it's no, you and, understand and, why when you go through his story for sure. No, well, yeah. yeah, oh absolutely. And, and I think that's the thing. You know, I mean, it's hard to stick a guy uh in single A and allow him to start knowing that, you know, his clock's ticking and he's almost 25 years old. And so I, I think that would probably be the the best case scenario for him. And uh, you you guys know how this works, but I think that for him, multi-inning bullpen guy, and I think he'll have some success uh, in the lower-level minor leagues just because of how seasoned he is and, you know, how much experience he has. Yeah, and he didn't walk a lot of guys, too. But I was looking at he had close to 100 strikeouts, less than 20 walks. So he's also really able to just limit walks while maintaining high strikeouts. No, yeah, and that, uh, that's just like Krigger, both those guys. They're coming at you, and you might hit them around the yard uh, some days, but they're not going to get themselves into trouble by putting guys on base uh, for freebies. And he, like I said, when when he's really rolling, it's the fastball inside to right-handed hitters, and he allows that big breaking ball, big 12-6 curveball, uh, which is extremely difficult to hit. That That's when he's at his best. And I think, you know, probably his best attribute is just that no fear. Like, I mean, he's coming at you uh, with that kind of bulldog mentality, uh, which I think is kind of what made him successful in college. Well, that was really a perfect breakdown of Gibson. We might as well do the same with Krigger. Uh, these highlights from the game against LSU at LSU on the road, coming the final four innings of that game, deep into extras as well, I think piled up eight strikeouts in, yeah, in relief was, in that game. And he, he just really 
fascinating season. I think he may have pitched in about as many games as anybody in Division One this year. He made 37 appearances, you know, more more than once every other game. So that that is really that's that's what stood out to me the, um, the most is just the usage that he was used in all these different situations and that they really leaned hard on him this past year. Oh, uh, there, there ain't no doubt about that. I, I think Lane Burroughs, that, that's the one thing that he talks about with Kyle Krieger. It's like, you know, if it's a tight game late, uh, he doesn't even have to look up down to the bullpen. He knows he was getting ready to come in the game, and he, he just kind of runs to those big situations. That's, that's kind of how he's built. Uh, the heartbeat never gets too high. You mentioned that LSU game. Uh, down in Baton Rouge, you know, Louisiana Tech had a late lead in that game. Uh, I believe it was 7-6 to six in the 12th. They get two on second and third with no outs, and he figures out a way uh, to get out of it. And he's just I, – I mentioned how big of a competitor Kate Gibson is. I, I could go beyond that with Kyle Kruger. I mean, this kid wants the baseball every time the game's on the line. And, and you know, you say that, you think reliever, you think a college closer that – He's kind of a two-pitch guy. I think if he was 20 years old, you'd probably send him out as a starter uh, because he's got a really good changeup, really good slider. Obviously, the fastball has been up to 97. Uh, but he can really, really pitch. And the 37 appearances, he kind of got worn down uh, later in the year. The numbers, uh, you know, the season totals weren't really – they don't accurately describe it, I, I guess you could say. Uh, he appeared five games in six days in the Conference USA Tournament, appeared in, uh, I believe, three of Louisiana Tech's regional games. He, he was just the guy that they went to with the game on the line. He, he's probably the, the, my most favorite kid that I've covered at Louisiana Tech over the last six years. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask um, about Kyle. Just what did you see from him? And you mentioned these high leverage moments, either against LSU, Conference USA tournament. Just how does he handle pressure? Just you, you know him better than us. You, you've probably been around him more. Just how is it ha- him handling pressure and you know be able to take the ball and say, "I'm going to go out there and, and you know beat this ranked team," or "I'm going to go off against their best hitter." Yeah, you know, if you took a picture of him, if you brought him in a game, bases loaded, no outs, you'd never know if there was nobody on, nobody out in an 11-nothing game. I, and that's just how he is. And he, he lives for those moments. He, he's another kid. Like I said, he's been through a lot. He committed to Louisiana Tech. They didn't have a stadium. Uh, had Tommy John surgery in the summer of 2020. Came back, uh, you know, eight or nine months and, and was back into the fire in 2021. And then you could kind of see the stuff really tick up uh, here in 2022. Fastball kind of got up to 97. And, and Lane Burroughs told us a funny story. Um, I believe it was the night of that LSU game that we got to talk to Jay Johnson. He said he kind of looked around the clubhouse uh, a week or two before the season was starting. It was like, guys, I, I don't really know who our closer is going to be this year. And he said not 15, 20 minutes later, the, the pitching coach was like, hey, you, you kind of pissed off Krieger. And he was like, well, that's kind of what I was intending to do. And I think that kind of helped propel him to the year that he had. But he's just such a competitor. He can, he can do fill a multitude of roles, uh, you know, he obviously had the nine saves. He's had outings where he's gone four or five innings at different times. He's that guy that you kind of look for as an older senior sign uh, that's going to really – he's going to get through single A. He's going to get through high A. He's going to be a guy that you kind of find out what he's made of when he gets to double A. Uh, but it, it wouldn't surprise me to kind of see him move up, continue to move up through a system just with his ability to pitch. He, he can really, really pitch. Uh, he's a three-pitch guy that can really get after hitters. 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know if this is a popular opinion, but there are some analysts I really trust that are curious if he could actually be a starter in the pros and going all the way up because you mentioned the three pitches he has. And I think there may even be like a, a second breaking ball there that he may have put in his back pocket when he was pitching out of the pen that he could bring out if he was in the starter role. I've just heard amazing praise for the kind of stuff that he has and how potentially you don't usually see it in that direction right when somebody their final year in school is only out of the pen and they make they get stretched out in the pros but he that he really is one of overall this entire draft for the marlins like he's somebody that has really opened my eyes when i dig into the kind of potential that he could have in the pros well yeah and it's like i said if he's 20 years old i don't think there's any doubt i think you send him out as a starter and you you kind of see what he can do before you push him into the bullpen if he proves he can't do it but yeah you know he can play off that slider some he can shape it in different ways and i mean you guys know how it is with the video these days with major league teams kind of getting their mind as far as spin rate and changing breaking balls and changing sliders or changing change-ups and fastball shape and all that type of stuff so uh, but I, I think he can really be successful. I think Cade can, too, uh, if he's used in the right way and you kind of get put him in those right spots. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, you, you a lot of it's luck at, at the end of the day. But uh, these are two guys, especially Krieger and Gibson, they can really, really get after it on the mound. And uh, I think that that's probably one of the things that attracted Major League teams to them the most is just how competitive they are uh, when they get on the mound. Yeah, just how was it just watching this team this year? Because I was just looking up, you know, multiple guys drafted. Um, right-handed pitcher Ryan Jennings win in, I believe, the fourth round. Just how was it just watching this pitching staff, you know, when you have multiple now guys who are drafted going to the majors? Yeah, and, you know, Jennings and Krigger and uh, Gibson, you know, they weren't the three guys at the beginning of the year. Jonathan Fincher's actually a big left-handed pitcher. Uh, there was an All-American a season ago that – uh, didn't have a bad year in 2022 by any means, but he, he wasn't drafted. And Jennings, you know, he was a fourth-rounder from the Blue Jays. A lot like these guys had faced some adversity, uh, was the Saturday guy to start the year, struggles, gets put into a bullpen. And I think that's ultimately, you know, was a blessing for him and why he got drafted. He goes up to 99 as a reliever, uh, you know, in the two weeks he's a reliever. And then every time you show up to a start, there's five or six scouts in the stands. And so – it, it kind of defines how the program is built. Like I was saying earlier, it's just a blue-collar, get-after-you type attitude. Taylor Young was picked in the eighth round by the Dodgers. Uh, he's a 5'8", uh, second baseman, played some shortstop, won a gold glove as a second baseman in collegiate baseball in 2021. They move him to shortstop here in 2022, hits 12 home runs. It, it's just the program, and it kind of – it seems funny to say, but that's kind of how it's been built. Just a bunch of guys that uh, didn't get a whole lot of recognition out of high school. All three are Krigger and Jennings are junior college guys. Gibson mentioned went to the NAI school. And then Young was a little 5'8 second baseman out of high school. So uh, that's just kind of the mentality that they kind of carry the, with, around with themselves. It's just kind of being that underdog and kind of proving how good they're going to be. Well, let's get you out of here on this way too early, a full calendar year away, but of the guys that are still with the team that are going to be draft eligible next year, is there anybody that that you have your eye on that you think has an, an opportunity to really open some eyes during the 2023 season heading into the, yeah, that draft? I'll, I'll give you all four names. Uh, I mentioned Jonathan Fincher earlier. Uh, I think these three pitchers getting drafted in the, you know, in the top 10 rounds, it'll be good motivation for him. 
uh, as he closes out the summer. He pitched in the Cape earlier this summer. Uh, and, and so he got some good experience up there, and I think that'll be good motivation for him coming back. Uh, also, Phil Matulia is another guy that's playing in the Cape right now. Uh, he's an outfielder. He turned down an offer from the Braves last summer, came back in 2022, didn't have as good of a year, uh, but he's a really, really good runner. He's probably a 6'8", 60 guy, has a lot of power as well, uh, played some first base for Louisiana Tech this year, but I think ultimately his defensive home uh, is probably out in left field. And the final two names, probably the, the upper echelon guys, George Corona is a catcher out of Miami. Uh, he was I believe he's picked in the 39th round out of high school by the Royals. He's coming off a year. He started a little bit slower, uh, but really came on strong late in the year, hit 280. I think he had 16 home runs, uh, had a 53% caught stealing rate. He's up in the Cape as well right now. And then finally, uh, Cole McConnell. Uh, he, he's really, really fun. He's a center fielder. He plays a, a corner outfielder professionally. Uh, some of the batted ball data wasn't as good, but he's just a really, really good pure hitter. Uh, hit 330 this year, had nine home runs, 76 RBIs. Uh, was actually just last week was named an All Star in the Cape uh, this for this summer. So uh, they got some guys coming back that are obviously uh, have a chance to be drafted. I mentioned a transfer from LSU, Brody Drost uh, was a top 100 player coming out of Barb High School in 2020. Uh, he'll be draft eligible as well. So I, I would expect that the program now that it's kind of gotten off the ground and really gotten rolling they're they're gonna have multiple guys drafted over the next few years that'd be that'd be a fun tradition uh every single year the marlins <laughs> go back to the well with tech and get well, more guys and, here and guys i'll tell you the, the funny thing is you know i would like to go ask some of these scouts you know who are you here watching you know what, what are you checking out and uh, a lot of times scouts you know they're going to tell you who they're watching but the biggest thing that they would tell you about the program is just kind of the culture surrounding it and how they they are able to keep guys here. Guys don't transfer out and how unique that is. And Parker Bates was a kid that was picked in the ninth round last year by the Royals. Uh, and he was a little bit similar to that as far as they just believe in the culture. They know the players are more mature and they're not kids that you're going to have to necessarily worry about in their transition to professional baseball. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of see where the program goes uh, to see if they can become – uh, one of those programs that can compete with an LSU or an Ole Miss more than just in a midweek game uh, yeah. year in and year out. Yeah, well, I'll, we'll be following it as closely as we can and, and vice versa, hopefully in just a few weeks, once these guys get signed, get on the mound, excited to get some highlights of them and with Marlins affiliates, and we'll send them your way here at this Stripes. We, uh, this is really, we're excited. Like I said, these, these particular picks with both Gibson and Krigger were a couple of my favorites in this entire draft class that the Marlins made. So uh, with, with Daniel Rodriguez, I'm Eli Sussman, Ben Carlisle of Bleed Tech Blue, covering the Louisiana State baseball program, an alum of the program himself, and seems like a proud alum of, what, of what, <laughs> how this program has taken off in recent years. Thank you for Absolutely. joining us so much, Ben. This has been awesome. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.